Hi, everybody. I'm Sabri Beneshaw from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholz from Quartz. Twice a month on this podcast, we're going to take you on a deep dive into the news. This is Actuality. So this week we're talking Cuba. Tim here just got back from Cuba and brought back this sound. What were you doing down there? I went down there to see how things have been changing since the U.S. decided to make it easier for people to travel and send money. And that's what we're going to look at, too. Absolutely. And the sound that you're hearing is the Tropicana Nightclub, one of the iconic Havana night spots that's been around since 1939, and it survived the 1959 socialist revolution that brought about the great big split between the U.S. and Cuba that maybe now it's being healed. But even today, you know, last week when I was there, you go, you're sat at a table right by the stage, you're given a bottle of rum and a bucket of ice, and it's like a temple slash tourist trap to Cuban culture. Salsa and rumba dancing, acrobatics, drumming, the whole nine yards. Well, I mean, it is, as you said, it's a tourist trap. It is a tourist trap, but it's an exciting one. And it matters because tourism is going to be one of the main impacts of this U.S. opening. When I was in Cuba, I met a woman named Nidiales Acosta, who operates a business that stands to benefit from more U.S. travelers coming down. She runs a business that restores classic cars. And anyone who knows anything about Havana knows that after the embargo, it was tough to get cars into the country. And a lot of the classic American models of the 40s and 50s just hung around and were pretty well taken care of by the most part and used as taxis and everyday vehicles. Some are falling apart, but the ones that Nidialis restores are looking great. If her whole business model is based on restoring old cars, is she worried about the embargo potentially lifting? I mean, won't that undermine her business? Well, I asked her exactly that, and she had a pretty good answer ready for me. The market starts opening up, uh, and more new cars start coming. Of course, we will find less cars in the in the streets. But then, in our case, uh, my husband, this is a business he loves, and we have in mind to keep on buying more cars, and, and but they're going to be beautiful. So in our case, it will probably be successful, because uh, the ones we're going to have are going to be like nice, interesting cars. But yeah, in general, we are going to see less cars. Uh. And yeah, and for... Everyone in Cuba, but particularly for someone restoring American cars, a big challenge is getting the parts. She was saying they're working on restoring a 59 Impala right now, and they can't find the right paint for it, but she knows you can get it in the U.S. For example, they face daily challenges every day. They are now fixing this car in Impala 59, Impala 59, she has been... Uh, trying to get the painting for the car for weeks. Did she have to get permission to have a business? She did. She had to get a license to have a business, and she made a point of thanking the Cuban government for the opportunities they gave her. And it's part of the sort of opening up of the private sector that we're going to talk about in just a little bit. Okay, I cannot imagine running any business, let alone a business in Cuba, but what was the big challenge for her? Well, the biggest challenge she had, and one of actually the most refreshing things about visiting Cuba, is that there's almost no advertising. You know, there aren't bulletin boards or signs or anything like that. There are billboards with Shea and Fidel on them and socialist slogans, but it's just tougher to let people know what you're doing there. So at the beginning when they started, they had this, uh, they just uh, printed these flyers and they had the uh, cards and so they went to the uh, homes, uh, houses for rent just to give them the cards. That was the way they started advertising. Just from people to people. 
And I asked her, sort of jokingly, but sort of embarrassed, if she was tired of having reporters and Americans in general just come down and always be asking, oh, what does the change mean? What's happening? And she took it with good humor. And And that's actually an important point that you found. Like when I hear people talking about going to Cuba, they say, I want to go down there before Cuba changes, as if America is going to change Cuba. As you found out, Cubans aren't so keen on that idea. Yeah, they feel like they run their own lives and they have their own country and that they're in sort of command of their own destiny and they're going to have as much U.S. trade as they want and no more. Well, also, it's not like they're North Korea. They have contact with everywhere else in the world that haven't had an embargo against them for 50 years, right? Absolutely. And the other thing is that the process of evolving their economy has, has already begun in 2011 with some updates that opened up the private sector and allowed people like Nidhi Alice to get jobs at places like Nostalgicar. So let's talk to someone who can speak to that. <laughs> This is Alana Tumino. She's the director of policy at the America Society and Council of the Americas and heads their Cuba working group. Alana was kind enough to introduce me to Nidialis before my trip to Cuba. Uh, welcome, Alana. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for coming. And so to start off, how does Nidialis's story fit into the big picture in Cuba? Cuba initiated a number of economic reforms in 2011. And one of the most significant reforms that it instituted was the ability for regular Cuban citizens to own a private business for the first time. And this was part of the package of the Los Lineamientos, or a blueprint for this updating of their social and economic model in Cuba. A large part of that was saying that the Cuban economy needs to become more productive. We need to reduce bureaucracy and produce more. And we're going to do this by reducing government and expanding this non-state or private sector. And Nidialis is one such entrepreneur who opened up a business and took advantage of these reforms in Cuba. Does this mean that people all of a sudden could own land themselves? Right. So it started very simply. They were saying, we're going to lay off a certain number of people from the state payroll, because in Cuba, everyone's on the state payroll. They said, we're going to start laying off hundreds of thousands of people on the state payroll to enter into a private sector. So they created different areas where it would be legally able to open up a private business. Right now, we're looking at over 200 areas where a Cuban citizen is allowed to open up and be a licensed private entrepreneur. And this was really revolutionary. Revolutionary um, for a lot of people in Cuba. No pun intended. And yes, no <laughs> pun intended, exactly. And so as a result, they had said within five years they want this non-state sector to grow substantially, and they were talking about two in five workers being part of this private sector. What do these businesses look like? Is it all restaurants or what is it? Yeah, so it's a mix. It takes the form of cell phone re- repair shops, car shops, nail salons, beauty salons, computer repair shops. A lot of state-owned enterprises are now being shifted over into the non-state sector. But so that's, I mean, that's interesting. You have to apply to open any business whatsoever. Like you have to apply to open the pet store or the beauty salon. Auto repair shop like our uh, guest TV and VCR repair. Automotive repair. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Did Uh, anyone else see that commercial from (laughs) Sally Struthers back in like the 80s? (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Where are they getting money to do this? How are they getting financing to do all this? It's hard enough to do a you know, business at all, let alone finance it. Yeah, absolutely. Starting a business in any country is extremely challenging. Being an entrepreneur in Cuba, I think, is even more challenging. A lot of money is coming from Cuban Americans, from Americans from the U.S., sending money and sending it to their family members in Cuba. If you are do really want people to succeed and start these own businesses, there's a lot of gaps that need to be filled in order to make them successful. What other kinds of investment are happening in Cuba right now? Well, the United States is kind of on the sideline because U.S. companies are not allowed to invest in Cuba 
because of our U.S. embargo, a lot of countries have been active in this space for a long time. Brazil, China, Spain have really jumped into the market in Cuba and have been investing pretty heavily. So will an American investment make a difference? It will make a huge difference. You know, the United States is the largest economy. It's 90 miles off the shore of Cuba. Everyone's saying, you know, when that happens, things are going to be opening up very quickly. So we still have the embargo in place that a lot of people are pushing to, you know, it's about time after 55 years that we give up our embargo against Cuba. And when that happens, it will be Already countries are jumping on the bandwagon and going to Cuba right now and seeing what opportunities could be there if and when that opportunity presents itself. One question that I think a lot of people have is whether these new changes are going to help the average Cuban or they're going to help people at state-owned enterprises or private enterprises. Do you have any sense of what the average person in Cuba is going to see as a result of this? There's definitely a lot of excitement on behalf of the Cuban people. They're living through these times where now they can finally and legally own a range of different businesses that maybe they've been thinking of for a long time but were never able to actually operate it. They're very excited about this new policy opening from the United States side that it's going to allow them, and especially since Obama's announcement, there's going to be a lot more space now to interact directly with this private sector in Cuba in terms of importing and exporting with them that was not allowed before. I think, as people say, with everything, the proof will be in the pudding. And while there's space and while there's been growing um, excitement in Cuba and growing growing business growth, we'll see if that really makes a difference. Thank you for joining us, Alana. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Alana Tumino is the head of the Cuba Working Group at the America Society and Council of the Americas. Tim, you know the music that you brought us from the Tropicana Club. That is Cuban music, but it's not the only thing that Cubans are listening to. No. Like anywhere else, there's a broad range of music available on the island. And I was actually surprised hopping into a cab. A lot of cabs will have a little dashboard-mounted radio with a USB key stuck in it. And they'll be playing, you know, reggaeton and Latin American music, but also contemporary American rap music like uh, Young Thug and Rich Homie Kwan, which I was quite surprised to be hearing as I cruised through the streets of Old Havana. Yeah, and that USB key, that's the internet for Cuba. It's like the handheld internet. There's something called the weekly package where every week about a terabyte of data comes in and someone actually goes door to door with a hard drive and lets people take off movies, sports broadcasts, TV shows. I met Cubans who are more up to date on Game of Thrones than I was. And it's sort of like the handheld internet. But the two things that you won't find are political content and pornographic content because that is not allowed. But literally some dude goes door to door with a USB key and each week it's like getting your... Getting your internet fix. Huh. And part of the reason that that's necessary is there's just not a lot of home penetration of internet access. Internet access in Cuba is at hotels or government offices or internet cafes, and it can be pretty expensive, which is not to say that Cuba hasn't been trying to upgrade its internet access. It recently got a fiber optic uh, undersea cable from Venezuela to bolster its internet connectivity. Uh, And we have here with us today uh, one of the first people to spot the fact that this cable was turned on. Uh, With us is Doug Midori. He's the uh, director of internet analysis at the company Dyne. Hi, Doug. How's it going? Good. So what does Dyne do? We call ourselves an internet performance company. Uh, A lot of that is based around DNS uh, direction of traffic. So DNS is what changes something like Facebook.com into the dotted decimal notation of an IP address. You guys are able to look at patterns of flow online, and you noticed something change in how 
data was moving in and out of Cuba back in 2013. What did you notice and what were you able to deduce from that? Sure. Uh, we saw a new international carrier show up as a transit provider for a Texas state telecom of Cuba. So when I saw a new transit provider show up as a new connection to the outside world, I figured there's a good chance that this is going over the submarine cable. And so then we had to use separate data that measured uh, the latency of traffic to and from Cuba going over that link. And when that came back as uh, faster than speeds that were possible via satellite, at that point we knew uh, we were looking at the activation of the Alba-1 submarine cable. So basically you guys were able to discover that Cuba is already well on its way to increasing its connectivity to the rest of the world. Yeah, I'd say that was a milestone for them. Certainly a new connection like that is going to increase their capacity of how much volume of traffic could possibly be handled between them and the rest of the world. You've compared Cuba's opening to the Internet with what's been happening in Myanmar. What are the parallels, and what does that tell us about what may happen in Cuba down the line? They're a little bit similar in that they were both kind of closed countries that are starting to open up. In Myanmar, they're having a, uh, an Internet revolution there in the past year, and Cuba could do something similar where they have an open bidding process for licenses they could easily get hundreds of millions of dollars, something on par with what was collected in Myanmar. But they would have to kind of change their philosophy of how to operate because that, that would require a capitalistic approach. And I think that's probably could be a, the hardest thing for them to, to overcome. Doug Midori, Director of Internet Analysis at Dyne, thank you so much. So, Sabri. So, Tim. What have we learned? I think one thing we have is an important piece of perspective, that if indeed Cuba and America do start opening up to one another further, it's not going to be that America comes in and transforms Cuba. We are not the only country in the world. Cuba already has contact with the rest of the world. That said, there is still going to be a significant effect, right? Absolutely. There are some people who think that the amount of tourists in Cuba is going to double if the U.S. opens up to full-on tourism. So right now, about three million people come to Cuba each year as tourists. About a million of them are Canadian. If things open up all the way, people think maybe three million Americans would go down every year. And that's the biggest impact we'll see right out the gate is just Americans bringing down their money and, and leaving it there. You know, if you come back from Havana, you come back with tobacco, rum, and coffee as your souvenirs, then those are all state-owned enterprises. But at the same time, we see this very top-down, choreographed, China-like opening towards business, right? Yeah, Cuba is making its own decision about how to evolve its economy in the new century. All right. Well, uh, now for something completely different. At Quartz, we have surprising discoveries. These are the news items that make you raise your eyebrows. Today's surprising discovery is also about visiting someplace that used to be harder to reach. Google has opened up its Street View product underwater. At select locations, you too can tour the world's seabeds. Why? So that you love the ocean more, Sabri. It's designed to promote conservation. How many different pretty, seabeds? Pretty. Ocean reefs. Look at the <laughs> colors. It's attractive. It's like scuba diving, but you don't have to go underwater. And probably, unlike Street View, you'll be less likely to see like a crime in progress or someone flashing you. Yeah, but has that actually happened on Street View? Sure. Whoa. You can see all kinds of crazy stuff on Street View. There are websites about this. Maybe we can see a shark mauling someone on underwater Street View. 
Uh, don't get your hopes up, but sure, possible. I'm not going to rule it out. Well, I mean, if I wanted to look at coral, though, I would just Google coral reef. Well, image. this is like a better way to Google coral reef image. This is like you're swimming amidst the reefs. All right, this is the next level. Wait till they get Oculus Rift up in this beast. We're going to be talking about some underwater street view experiences like you've never seen. Fine, fine. But for now, I hate the environment and the ocean. <laughs> really? No. Okay. All right. That's the surprise. (laughs) Supreme comes out against nature. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, If you want to know more about Cuba, cigars, or anything else happening in the economy today, check out marketplace.org and qz.com. While you're at Quartz, sign up for our daily brief email. It is the perfect way to start your day. And by the way, we'd love to know what you think of this podcast, what you like and what you didn't, and what topics we should take on. So email us at mpqz at marketplace.org. And you can holler at us on Twitter. I'm at Sabritri, and Tim is at Tim Fernholtz with a Z. Thank you to our producer, Claire Tennisketter, and to our overlords at Quartz and Marketplace. You've been listening to Actuality, the Marketplace Quartz podcast. We'll be back soon with more stories. See you then.